So in times of crisis, it's natural to look to authorities to help pull you through. And so in our present health crisis, many of us, well, what have we done? We've looked to politicians, we've looked to the press, we've looked to physicians, and we've looked to scientists. And yet many of us have found that our trust in such authorities has been shaken if not shattered altogether. So politicians on both sides of the aisle have played fast and loose with facts. They've often ignored in practice what they're preaching from their own bully pulpits. Scientists have struggled to come to a consensus, often looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions. And that's not to say that they aren't doing their best, but it is to say that such data has often left them puzzled and scratching their heads. The press has often politicized the crisis, at times magnifying and at other times obscuring what is actually happening. Trust in traditional media outlets, just out this last week, trust in such outlets is at an all-time historic low, as ideology, as opposed to facts, often drives reporting. And now we're learning that a surprising percentage of police and armed service personnel, well, they, including, tragically, an Olympic swimmer, ah, say it ain't so. Right, all of these, well, what have we learned? We've learned they actually took part in the Capitol riots earlier this month. Right, so all of this is raising doubts and questions about many of those authority structures in our own lives. And so where are Americans therefore turning? Where are they turning in such troubled times? Psychics. Yeah, psychics, that's right. According to a New York Times article this past week, with the collapse of such traditional authorities, Americans are turning, we're told, in record numbers to psychics for definitive answers during this crisis. Now this, admittedly, is a development that the New York Times doesn't exactly celebrate, given how the industry, they note, how it often preys on the vulnerable. So friends, here's my question. Here's my question. In the most important matters of life, is there any authority we can truly trust? Any authority where when that individual or institution speaks, we know and can believe they speak the truth? Friends, to help us think about this question, I want to invite you to turn once again to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel, we're going to be in chapter 11. We're going to be verses 27 of chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12, verse 17. So 11, 27 to 12, 17. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, don't fret, don't worry about that. The text to the sermon, if you grab that worship guide on the way in, you should be able to find the text to the sermon on page 8 and 9 of this worship guide. Now, if you just happen to be joining with us this morning, Jesus, in Mark 11, has arrived in Jerusalem for the final week of his own life. And while his arrival has really drawn the applause of the crowds, it has also drawn the ire of the religious leaders. And so in chapters 11 through 13, there's going to be this public showdown between Jesus and the religious authorities. Kind of like UFC fight night last night. Right, it's going to be a confrontation full of sparks, right? lots of verbal volleys before a captivated crowd. Only the locations, not an octagon, the location here is the temple. And in this side, right, in this fight, there is one side that is hell-bent on taking life. And amazingly, on the other side of this fight, there is one who is committed to laying down his life. Now, round one began last week with Jesus. He walks into the temple, which is that most sacred and most revered institution in Israel, and he flips over the tables of the money changers and really drives them out, convinced that the whole system has withered right from the roots up. Remember the, remember the fig tree? Right? He shuts the whole thing down, Jesus does. But the religious authorities, they're not going to go down without a fight. So round two, we're going to see this morning, those religious authorities, they come out swinging at Jesus. 
And so we pick up the story, chapter 11, verse 27. We'll start and we'll read through 1217. And they, Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking, Jesus in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Well, and they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard to put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this in scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Rodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, There's obviously a lot here in this passage. But I think the thread that sort of ties it all together for us is this thread of authority. Namely, Jesus' own authority as he confronts the religious authorities of his own day. And so we've really got three scenes. You've got the first scene in 1127 through 1133. And there we're going to consider the source of Jesus' authority. We're going to see it's divine, right? It's celestial. We're going to think of that source first. And then in the second scene, really 12.1 through 12, that parable, we're going to consider the response to Jesus' authority and how it sparks contempt, right? Derision. And then the third scene, 12.13 to 17, we're going to consider the scope of Jesus' authority and how it's comprehensive, right? It's exhaustive. So that's going to serve as our outline first, the source of Jesus' own authority, then the response to that authority, and then the scope of that authority. Now first, let's think about the source of Jesus' authority. Let's think about the source of that authority, which 
which Mark is clearly portraying for us as a celestial, right? It's divine. And the passage opens there in 1127 with Jesus, and he's returning to the temple. So here is Jesus like, returning to the scene of the crime, right? The very next day after he's just upended everything. And there he is, what? He's strolling about the temple in 1127. No fear of retribution. That's if Jesus is begging for conflict. Because this is his domain. Right? As he strolls through, he's making the point, this is my house. And I have every right to be here. Now it's at this point right, that he's approached in verse 27. We read by the chief priests, by the scribes, and by the elders. Now recall these three groups make up what's referred to as the Sanhedrin. Right, this is sort of the official seat of religious power among the Jews. This, for Jesus to be confronted with all of these groups, it's a bit like one being confronted by Biden, President Biden and his cabinet, by the Senate House majority and minority leaders, right? You've got Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, right? Mitch McConnell, all of those folks. And then you've got nine justices of the Supreme Court also in tow, led by Chief Justice John Roberts. And then you've got the chiefs of staff, right? You just, you put it all together. That's how you're meant to sort of see the weight and feel of it all as they all come, their security details. And this whole group, this authoritative group, they come to one man. They come to Jesus in the temple. Now, if you're a Jew, there is not a more intimidating scene than to be confronted the entirety of this group here in the temple, right? Any Israelite shaking in his sandals right now. And they put to him one simple question, verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? You see highlighted right there that notion of authority. Now, this week, President Biden signed 30 executive orders in his first three days in office, right? These are sweeping orders that, that deal with everything from the economy, right, to immigration, to the environment, to LGBTQ advocacy, to the coronavirus, all of it. Now, Biden wasn't able to issue these orders this week because he intrinsically possesses that right in and of himself. No, he was able to, to issue those executive orders because we, the people, invested him with that right. So the Sanhedrin is effectively saying, listen, who invested you, Jesus, with such rights? What gives you the right to ride into Jerusalem like a king and then to shut down the temple like you own the place? What right do you have to do that? And implied in this question, of course, is that they are the only authoritative ruling and religious body in Israel. And of course, Jesus, this one man, is the imposter. Now, if you think back through the Gospel of Mark, this is a rather hollow and ignorant claim. For from the start, what has Jesus done? He's confronted the religious authorities right in chapter 2 and 3. We saw that break out, right, when he heals the sick when he binds the strong man, when he claims to forgive sins, when he claims supremacy over the Torah and over the Sabbath, when he calmed the seas, when he fed the masses, when he raised the dead, this is all marked Jesus' ministry. Everything about his ministry is marked by what? By supernatural authority. Every bit of it, his first public event, what did the people cry what is this, Mark 1, a new teaching with authority. That's the first cry of the people as they're confronted with Jesus, right? Jesus didn't need to be inaugurated. He didn't need to be knighted. He didn't need to be crowned. Such authority was intrinsic to Jesus. It was not conferred upon him. It was intrinsic to him, which is why you'd think at this point, the religious authorities and full knowledge of all that's marked his ministry, you would think at this point, well, they would be bowing down to this man. They would be worshiping this man, not interrogating this man. And yet Jesus, before this interrogation, before this great show of force, right, he is not deterred in any way. Right? Jesus is unflappable once again. And he what? Well, now metaphorically, he's going to flip the tables in the temple once again. And he's going to metaphorically flip them by posing this question, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
Now, basically, what Jesus is asking them in that question was he's saying, listen, all of you, was John a prophet sent by God, speaking the word of God, and doing the will of God, or was John just a fake and a phony? Right? You tell me, which is it? The prophet sent by God, speaking the word of God, doing the will of God, or was he a fake and a phony? Answer me. Jesus says, pointedly, pushes back at them, right? Even this confrontation highlights Jesus' own authority because you've got this young, he would have been much younger likely than many of the others who were confronting him. You've got this young, unlettered rabbi, right? No formal schooling, and he's pressing them. He's leaning into them. He's controlling the conversation. And with that question, he has them all flummoxed. Right? They don't know what to say. They're speechless. They have to stop. they got to go back. They have to deliberate with one another. They don't know how to respond to Jesus. Why? Well, if, if they say John wasn't a prophet, well, they all knew that the people understood him to be a prophet. They themselves likely at some level understood John to be a prophet. They know if they say he wasn't a prophet, they're going to lose the support of the people. But if they say John was this prophet sent by God, speaking the words of God, doing the will of God, well, that poses a much bigger problem because John's whole ministry was about preparing the way for God's coming king. And John said that coming king was Jesus. And it was when John baptized Jesus, right? That's when the heavens parted and the spirit descended and the divine voice declared, you are my beloved son, so if John really was a prophet, as most all believed him to be, then Jesus really is the Son of God, invested with this divine, with this celestial, heavenly authority. Simply put, a decision about John is a decision about Jesus, and they can't escape it. So here we have Jesus, right, in the temple, before the Sanhedrin, so he's in the most authoritative place and before the most authoritative body. And in that moment, he's revealing his own divine authority to them all in a way in which they cannot escape it. And with that, the Sanhedrin, they find themselves impaled upon the horns of a dilemma. For they either lie about John or they tell the truth about Jesus. So what happens? What happens? Either way they lose, they see it, they know it, and they simply come back and say, we don't know. We don't know. Now, if any of you have seen the uh, Netflix miniseries, right, the, the Queen's Gambit, you know that Beth Harmon, she has got mad chess skills, right? Mad chess skills. But nothing compared to Jesus. Nothing compared to him. In just one move, it's checkmate. It is checkmate to the most educated, the most prestigious, the most revered religious figures in the land. So imagine the humiliation. Imagine the loss of face to be unable to answer this simple question from an uneducated, unschooled Galilean rabbi. It must have been humiliating for them. But here's the thing with the religious leaders, right? Here's the thing. Their problem wasn't a lack of knowledge. It wasn't that they didn't know who John was. Their problem was that they were unwilling to accept who John was. They were unwilling to really accept where all of the evidence pointed in John's ministry and in Jesus' own ministry, their own pride and their own self-interest prevented them from acknowledging what was obvious, namely that Jesus is the Son of God invested with the divine authority of God. So maybe you've come this morning, maybe you're listening and you wouldn't identify as a Christian. I wonder if you've carefully considered the claims of Christ. Have you carefully considered the claims of Christ? Recognize Jesus did not claim to be just another religious 
prophet in a long line of now dead religious prophets. No, he claimed, Jesus did, to be God in the flesh. He claimed to speak for God uniquely and perfectly. He claimed to be the only way to God, sacrificially, vicariously, right, through his own life and death and resurrection. So everything he did, everything he did, so his teaching, his, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, all of that was in support of those basic truths, So again, if you've come and you're skeptical of Christianity or have rejected Christianity in the past, I wonder if you've actually carefully considered the claims. If not, would you be so so open-minded as to consider the claims of Jesus? Right, to go where the evidence leads. Let me just encourage you to read through. If that's you, read through the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, we actually, I just made sure that we've got a stack of Bibles at Connecting Point. So as you walk out these doors, go out the glass doors, there's a table to the right. We're going to have a stack of Bibles there for you. If you don't own a Bible, grab one on the way out and read through the Gospel of Mark. Consider the claims of Jesus from those who lived with him, the eyewitness accounts, even his enemies, right, and what they had to say about him. Because recognize, if Christianity is false, it's of utterly no importance, And you don't have to waste your time anymore. But recognize if Christianity is true, it is of infinite importance. It is worth all your time. What we can never say is that Christianity is just kind of moderately important. Jesus doesn't leave us with that option. Now the Christians in the room, I know right now uh, it can be hard to know who to trust who you can depend upon, right? Whether authority figures in politics again or in press or health professionals. It's been, in these last season, it's been easy to feel betrayed, easy to feel let down. But as a believer, there's one thing you have to know this morning. You have got to know that there is one authority figure who will never betray you. There is one authority figure who will never lie to you, one authority figure who doesn't traffic and profit in falsehoods, one authority figure who will not prey on your worst fears, one authority figure who will speak and cut through the darkness and in the confusion, and when he speaks, speak words of perfect, beautiful truth into your own lives. Friends, that person is Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who possesses such authority. And right now as a believer, you need him. You need him more than you recognize that you need him. You need him speaking into your life every single day with the clarity of this word. You do not need your phone. You do not need your Twitter feed. You do not need Netflix, though the series was fun. You don't finally need any of those things. You don't need more of the pundits and the provocateurs on the websites and news stations. You need this authority in your life every day. You need this word. This word that is the power to keep you grounded. This word that is the power to keep you sane when you look around and feel like everyone is going insane to keep you from the kind of distraction and diversion that Satan would use to steal your soul. Right now, you need the authority of Jesus speaking into your life, comforting you in your fears, convicting you in your sin, which he will do graciously, but then also conforming you to him, conforming you to Christ. Some of you, you just got to stop and take stock of your life. Because in the anxieties of this life, you've pushed this word out of your life. And you've pushed the community of believers out of your life. But in the words of Lewis's screw tape, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light. Murder is no better than cards. If cards can do the trick, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts.
Friends, you need to be honest with yourself. And you need to ask yourself, will I daily decide to look to and lean on the authority of Jesus alone in my life? Or will I continue to look elsewhere to follow that gentle, slow, gradual slope only to find one day when it's too late that I had withered up and died? Friends, which path will you take? Which authorities will you trust? You know, early on in my investment career, I had a number of bosses. And the first two were not so great. Number one, drank too much. Number two, cussed and screamed and yelled too much. But the third boss, she was great. She excellent at her job. She cared deeply about the people who worked for her. She developed those who worked with her spent time with them, invested in them, treated them fairly. And in response, those who worked for her tended to give her everything. Now one might think, given Jesus' own authority, given his good authority, given the way he exercises as he has shown throughout the gospel and as he told us in Mark 10, the one who exercises this authority not to be served, right, but to serve and to give his life sacrificially as a ransom for many. One might think, given that kind of sacrificial, servant-minded leadership, right, that, that everyone around him would naturally give their lives to him. We might think so, that they'd welcome it. Friends, will they? Do you? Well, secondly, I want us to consider the response to this authority. I want us to consider the response to Jesus' own authority. Because if his, the source of it was, right, it was celestial, it was divine, we're going to see the response is contempt. It's derision. Jesus knows their hearts. And he knows that in the same way these religious authorities did not welcome John, so they would not welcome him. And instead, they would show this contempt for him. So what does Jesus do? He takes this opportunity to tell a parable in 12, 1 to 12. Now, just a disclaimer here. I know, I know we're Baptists, and I know this is an illustration about alcohol. But it's from Jesus, so we've got to be okay with it. Take a deep breath. It's going to be all right. right. Here we go. We can do it. Because behind this parable, as was read earlier, right, Isaiah 5. That's, what, that's the story, that's the image that's behind this parable, where you've got God who lovingly chooses this fertile plot of land. He clears it of stones. He carefully plants a vineyard with choice vines. He builds a watchtower, right, carves out a wine press, does all of these things with meticulous care, as any master venter would do if he's going to produce the perfect bottle of wine. And yet, when he goes to it and looks for choice grapes among that vineyard, we read that it yielded what? It yielded in Isaiah 5, wild grapes, Isaiah 5 too. Wild just refers to sour, or as the CSB says, worthless grapes, right? Grapes that can't be used, right? No fruit. And in Isaiah 5, 7, that vineyard is referred to as Israel. Jesus is now borrowing that well-known image and he's going to use that, and he's going to tell a similar story about a gracious landlord. And this landlord plants a vineyard. Only the tenants, what do they do? They, they turn from him, they show contempt for him, and these are the kind of tenants we see who pay their rent in blows, literally. The first servant who comes is beaten, and with each servant, right, the treatment gets progressively worse. The climax comes in verse 6, 12.6, when we read that the, the owner had one more to send, right? A beloved son. They will respect my son, the man reasons. They'll respect him. And so he sends the son as the father's representative with the father's authority to the father's property to claim the father's due. Right, that's what's happening. In the sending of the son, he sends the son as the father's representative with the father's authority to the father's property to claim the father's due. 
Only what do the tenants do? They conspire to kill him, 12-7. This is the heir, they say. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they kill him, and they toss him out of the vineyard, a sign of their contempt and disgrace for the owner of the vineyard. Now, some parables conceal their meaning for those who do not have eyes to see or ears to hear. More like in chapter 4, where we had the last parable. This one, not so much. Jesus tells this one right out in the open, and the meaning is clear. It is crystal clear. There is no mistaking that Jesus understands himself to be the Son, and that these religious imposters are the ones that are bent on blood. Verse 12, right, it says they know Jesus told this parable against them, right, is an indictment of them. So often, we think it's irreligious people who have a problem with God's authority, but recognize deeply religious people can also have a problem with God's own authority. For this parable reveals that these religious leaders, they resented the landowner's authority over them. Right? They didn't finally want a relationship with God. They never wanted to be ruled by God. Yeah, they could go through all the motions, but it's not finally what they were after. They saw in this parable a chance to escape from under the arrangement. But friends, just consider for a moment the arrangement of the parable. Just think about it. I mean, what a beautiful arrangement. So just imagine someone comes to you and says, hey, listen, I've got this villa in Napa Valley. Great spread, overlooking the valley, beautiful, award-winning wines, right? Everything you could ever want. If you'll just move in and look over it a bit, watch over some of the workers, right? It's yours. You can stay there. You can have it. That's it. That's all you got to do. Just stay in the house Enjoy the fruits of the wine, right? Enjoy the pool, the villa, the land cruiser, all. Like, it's, just, it's yours. Stay there. Just, I'm going to come on occasion, and I'm going to get some of the bottles to use for my own benefit. Listen, if that was offered to any of us, I imagine we're going to take it. We're going to go for that deal. And yet, yet they don't go for that deal. No, they actually come to resent this deal because they want the riches of God, but they do not want the rule of God. All the benefits, right? They want all the assets that come with this, but they don't want any of the accountability or any of the authority. Friend, I wonder if in any way that describes you. Does that in any way describe your own relationship with God? Do you possibly see any of yourself in these tenants? It's so easy to see ourselves as the good guy, right? And a lot of these, the good guy, when in the reality, a lot of our hearts are aligned far more on the other side, we don't like to see it. But friends, what is the sum total of human history? What is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God? Is that not what Adam and Eve not so subtly pursued in the garden? A life outside of God's authority? And is that not what Charles Darwin's own life was about? You know, we sometimes think of his life and his work as this objective, independent inquiry into the origins of life. But if you read his works, if you read his biographers, not at all. Regardless of what you think of his conclusions, I'll just leave that off the table. His aim was clear. Darwin's aim was to rewrite the history of life to rewrite the origins of life without God, without his authority. Friend, is that not so often what drives us? So often we reject God, we reject Christ, not because we misunderstand his claims upon our life, but because we understand them all too well and we don't want to have anything to do with them. But consider God for a moment. Consider how this parable depicts God. How gracious he is. How long-suffering God is. How persistent and patient is his love for his people. Time and time again, he gives the tenants a chance to turn. 
And at each turn, they respond how contemptuously, with more anger, with more rage. And yet, like Hosea, he's continually willing to take them back. And then, to our shock and dismay, the owner does what we would never dream to do. What even as we read it, we're crying out, no, like, don't do that. That's the last thing you should do. Send your son, your only son. But it's what God does. It's how God loves. We are the tenants, and he has sent his son for us. He came to us to redeem us after all we've done. But God, we read in Romans 5, 8, God, what God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How does God demonstrate his love for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, why would you possibly reject this God this morning? Why would you possibly turn from him? Why would you possibly resent this God, hate this God, the one who has always and ever been patient and loving toward you in Christ? I mean, recognize nobody will love you like God has loved you in Christ. Nobody will care for you like God has cared for you in Christ. Nobody will be as patient with you, as long-suffering with you, as compassionate with you, as gracious with you, as God has been with you in Christ. You know, Scott Belinsky was sharing last Sunday evening, he was meditating for those first few minutes about the kindness of God. The kindness of God. Friend, that kindness should drive us to wonder. It should drive us all to worship does it for you? Does it drive you to such wonder and worship? Because when our hearts and our motives are exposed, as these religious authorities are having theirs exposed in this moment, we all have really just one of two options. We can either return to God, we can repent of our sins, and we can run to him, and he welcomes us, as we know, with open arms. That's option one. Or we harden our hearts and we dig in our heels. We will either embrace him or we will execute him. Those are the responses to Jesus. And there is not another response. Friends, which will it be? Because in the parable, there is a limit to how long-suffering God is. There's a limit to his long-suffering. Jesus says the owner of the vineyard will come and will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus goes on to quote Psalm 118, which he quoted during the triumphal entry. And he quotes it again about how the rejected stone, which Jesus is presenting as himself, because he knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen toward the end of this week, as the rejected stone is going to become the cornerstone of a new spiritual community, right, for others, Jew and Gentile in the church were seeing once again the encouragement Mark's gospel would have brought to those in Rome, likely receiving it and hearing it and knowing that they had been brought into the spiritual community. And yet, even though Jesus is inviting them and warning them, right, these leaders about what's to come, inviting them back to him, warning them what's to come, how do they respond, verse 12? After hearing this parable, how do they respond? They seek to arrest him which we already know is the goal of the arrest is to destroy him, to kill him. So notice the irony right in that response in verse 12. How in that action, they perfectly align themselves with the tenants. Jesus hasn't barely finished the parable, and they are already aligning themselves with the tenants of the parable. And they have sealed their fate. Now, Christians here today, it's, it's good for us to know in the words of, of Hebrews 1 that in these last days, God has spoken definitively, authoritatively in his son. He's spoken that way in his son. But that doesn't mean God doesn't send messengers anymore. He does send messengers, not with the same authority of Jesus and Jesus' own words, but he sends messengers as in the form of messages like this that would point you back to that word. He sends messengers in the form of, of friends and biblical relationships that will, will speak God's word and God's truth into your life. 
He'll sometimes send messengers through various trials that God may bring. Trials that are meant to drive you back to Christ. Trials that will call you to uniquely depend upon Christ. Friends, the question of your believer out here is how do you respond to God's messengers today? How do you respond to them? Do you welcome them? Or do you seek to silence the voice of God in them? The temptation is to think we can run from God. The temptation is to think somehow we can escape this authority over our own lives. And this brings us thirdly to the scope of Jesus' own authority. To the scope of that authority. Because in the final scene, what do we have? We've got two groups. The Pharisees and the Herodians. And they come, verse 13 we notice, to trap him in his talk. So we got once again another confrontation between Jesus and the rulers of his day. Now we might be tempted to run right past these groups, right? Pharisees and Herodians, all we know is they don't like Jesus. But these are strange bedfellows. These are not groups that you would normally find together. Because the Pharisees, they would be more of your Jewish hardliners. They would be more nationalistic. And the Herodians, well, they were the mere puppets of Rome, right? So these groups know love lost between these two groups of people, polar ends of the political spectrum. It might be a little bit like, you know, AOC locking arms with Ted Cruz. Not really what you'd expect to see in any normal day. They can't agree on anything except here. They can't agree on the absolute necessity of doing away with Jesus. That, these two groups that can agree on nothing, well, they, it seems, can agree on that. And so what do they do, verse 14? They seek, in verse 14, to butter him up. Teacher, we know that you're true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Just notice how doubly ironic that statement is. They're praising Jesus for his integrity in the midst of their own hypocrisy. Right, you got that irony. But also, secondly, because this false flattery is actually making a profoundly true statement about Jesus. He is, in fact, everything they claim him to be. He speaks truthfully, honestly, respectfully. He shows no partiality. That's what it's getting at. Just members of UBC. Can the same be said of us? Can the same be said of us as a congregation? You know, yes, culture will be increasingly angered by our position on abortion. They may be enraged by our unwillingness to join the sexual revolution, yes. But can they say that we speak truthfully, act righteously, behave respectfully, show no partiality? Imagine what effect that kind of reputation might have on our witness in this community, how God might use that. But here's the question posed to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so notice, they seem to have learned their lesson, right? They got impaled on the horns of a dilemma back in the first scene. Now they've come up with their own dilemma, and they're trying to impale Jesus on this dilemma. This is the kind of heads I win, tails you lose question, right? That's what they're trying to put forward to Jesus. If Jesus says, yes, pay, then it would appear that he's siding with Rome against the Jewish people and he's guilty of treason to the Jewish people. If he says no, then he seems to be rejecting Roman authority. Now he's guilty of insurrection and sedition. Right? Jesus is doomed, it seems, either way he answers. So what does Jesus do? He says, bring me a denarius. Right? Bring me a denarius. A denarius was, was a Roman coin. And on one side, it would have had, at this point, the image of Tiberius Caesar, And with that image of Caesar would have been the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of a divine. They understood the the deification of Caesar, son of a divine. But you know what? On the other side of that coin, on the flip side, it would have said Pontifex Maximus, high priest. That's what it would have read on either side of that denarius. So if you wanted to offend a Jew, you couldn't do much better than making them pay a Roman tax with a coin bearing the image of Caesar who claimed to be both a divine king and a high priest over God's people. It couldn't get much more offensive. 
It might be like asking President Biden, and we all saw the wonderful memes of Bernie Sanders, right? During the inauguration, that old frumpy coat, whatever those things were in his hands, right? That scowl. Just imagine if Biden and Sanders and all of them for the inauguration were required to wear MAGA hats. They wouldn't have taken too nicely to that. They would have found that quite offensive. Would have struggled every moment and every turn. Well, you're getting something. Just a sliver of what it would have been like for the Jews to be required to pay this tax with this Roman coin. But don't miss another irony. Right? They've come to Jesus seeking to trap him as a traitor. But who are the ones with Roman coin tumbling out of their pockets? Jesus doesn't have it. They're the ones who've got all the Roman coin. Well, Jesus famously says, verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So much could be said about his response. Theologians have written whole political philosophies on this single verse. I just want us to make two observations. First, as God's people, we are citizens of two kingdoms simultaneously. We are the citizens as Christians and the kingdom of God and we are particular citizens in this world. What Augustine called the city of man and the city of God. We exist in both kingdoms. And we don't want to confuse the two. So pastors shouldn't pretend to wield the sword. And presidents shouldn't pretend to wield the keys. So we should not be seeking as churches to be administering the death penalty. Nor should we look to President Biden or Schumer, or any others to be determining who we can baptize and what as a church we can believe, right? We understand those are separate realms of authority. But it does mean, what Jesus says, that God's people have obligations to the state as well as to God. And Jesus couldn't be clear on this here. Paul says, to quote him in Romans 13, 7, he says, pay to all what is owed them, Taxes to whom taxes are owed, which is what Jesus just said right here. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Oh, if we would hear those words. Honor to whom honor is owed. You know, as Christians, we have to be reminded that a state doesn't have to be Christian in order for it to be legitimate. But second, notice as well, that while these two kingdoms are legitimate, they are not equal. They are not equal. And here's the kicker. When Jesus says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the thing that are God's, he's saying, listen, if this coin bears Caesar's image, it belongs to Caesar. But you, humanity, who bear God's image... You belong to God. That's what Jesus is teaching. He's saying, listen, you're all consumed with this little coin here. I see many more coins staring at me. I see all of you bearing a different image. I see all of you bearing the image of God stamped upon your own consciences and you must give to God what belongs to him. You must give to God the entirety of your lives. That's what Jesus is pressing on. Jesus is teaching that the scope of his authority, the scope of his authority, it is comprehensive, it is exhaustive, it is total, it is absolute. Right in the famous words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in which the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine, mine. Which means none of us can finally run from God. We can't hide from him. One day we'll all have to give an account to him. Every one of us belong to this God. Which is why we're called rightfully to give everything over to him. If you're a non-Christian, that begins simply by submitting your life to him, by confessing this God who's come in the person of Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, that you need him, 
that he alone has died as the perfect sacrifice for sinners and been raised as that perfect, like the vindication of God in that resurrection. Jesus has indeed put away sin for good. Your sins, if you turn and repent and trust in him, and you can be reconciled to God, it begins right there by confessing your need, laying it all before him, and giving yourself to him. But it doesn't stop there, though, right? If, we're, if we go beyond that, our Christian friends, our, our commitment to Christ is not just measured in that thing we once did, but it's in how we continually live every single day, right? Our bodies, our bank accounts, what we say, our speech, sex, how we drink, what we eat, if we eat, if we overeat, how we drive. Nothing, Jesus says, is outside of his purview. You have not understood what it means to follow Christ until you have turned everything over to Christ. Have you done that? Or is the world's coinage also tumbling out of your own pockets? I know that may sound daunting, right? Turning everything over, everything over to Christ, it sounds overwhelming. You know, maybe you're a new Christian, or maybe you're just a young Christian here, you know, a teenager, or maybe even younger, and it can feel sort of overwhelming, right, to consider this. But let me just encourage you, start small. Start small. Just begin by giving the first part of your day to God as you rightly ought to, spending time in his word, committing yourself to prayer, advertising and to the world and reminding yourself that he alone is dependable. He alone is capable of doing what you cannot do. Begin there. Just right there. Begin there. Start there and watch God work. Watch God work in your life. But then commit yourself right, to fellowship with other believers. For one of the principal ways that many reject Christ's authority is by rejecting his community. It's by rejecting what he calls his body, the local church, the role of that body in our lives. That is one of the principal ways we reject Christ. For the question is not whether Jesus has complete, sovereign authority over our lives. The question is whether we will graciously accept it, yield ourselves to it, and delight in it. Friend, have you done that? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise for the way in which Christ speaks honestly, at times bluntly, but we trust if he speaks bluntly, it's because there's no other way we would hear him. And so we praise you for the way in which you have revealed yourself so wonderfully to us and blessed us with such kind and gracious authority in Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.